If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our scripture reading for today is John 20, verses 19 through 21. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said this. He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Here ends this word inspired by God. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. It is the Sunday after Easter, and so it must be time to talk about Thomas, Um, better known as Doubting Thomas, of course, and you don't want to be one. That's what I heard growing up as a kid in church. Almost every sermon right after Easter, same message, don't be a Doubting Thomas. This is also called Low Sunday, for good reason. (laughs) 
although this is pretty amazing, uh, you saw people in church last Sunday on Easter that you've never seen before <laughs> and may never see again. And many of the regular folk will also take this Sunday off, or to put it in the trinity of certainties, the sun rises in the east, the pope is Catholic, and attendance drops off after Easter. And who can blame us? We're resting, we're resting after the big Easter party. Although no one would come right out and say this, perhaps we feel so full to overflowing from the week before that we just assume God has given us a kind of special dispensation. Go to high Sunday, get off low Sunday, kind of like a voucher. Come on, we deserve to play a little hooky, watch the morning talk shows, clean out the garage, sleep in, run a 5K, not get the kids up and all that. Or, or, maybe if we are real church veterans and we know the rhythms of the lectionary cycle, we know that the preacher's gonna stand up and tell us the story, the story of Thomas today and how not to be like him. I mean, we could probably write this sermon for the preacher. Don't let all those exclamation marks from Easter curl into question marks of doubt so quickly. Don't hide out behind closed doors, show us your wounds, and then proclaim, as did Thomas, that Jesus is God. Which, if you were listening, is what he said. My Lord and my God, and that is the real conclusion that John's gospel has intended to prove since the opening words of the prologue, that Jesus was pre-existent with God, was God, walking around on the earth, and has now gone home to live happily ever after with himself. <laughs> and by the way, when it comes to Easter heresies, that's the biggest one of them all. It's called doceticism. So I'm gonna take a completely different approach this morning and I'm gonna sing the praises of doubt. I'm gonna recommend doubt, encourage it, urge us not to fear it, and then invite all of us to be the doubting Thomases in this world that are so desperately needed right now. The title of this sermon is obviously tongue in cheek. Instead of give me that old time religion, it's give me that old time doubting because, well, I like Thomas. I've spent my whole ministry being Thomas. Of all the disciples, Thomas is the one I would most like to have a beer with. First, a bit of context. <clears throat> John tells this story to stand in for all those who have not seen the risen Jesus and are skeptical, but who are urged to believe that he is truly the Messiah because, well, even a doubter like Thomas has seen him and come to believe. Thomas has good reason to doubt this incredible claim, and he wants some empirical proof that what his fellow disciples have told him is really true. And he lays out the evidence that's required clearly. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And we don't know why Thomas was not present with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared to them and breathed on them the breath of the Holy Spirit. Maybe he was fishing. Maybe he was taking a, a nap. Maybe he was just tired of hanging out with these guys because they were getting on his nerves. 
Or maybe he's being cautious given what has just happened to the one they called Lord. That would scare you. Maybe Thomas is not at all certain that this is a crowd he wants to be seen with. If they killed the teacher, what's to stop them from hunting down and killing the students? All we know is that the resurrection is second-hand knowledge to Thomas. It's a second-hand report, just like it is to all of us. And he was skeptical in exactly the same way that many of us are skeptical when people make supernatural claims. We should be skeptical. Not long ago, we heard that Elvis Presley had been seen in the flesh at a Burger King in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay. So we want to know, does anyone have like cell phone footage of that? Did any of the patrons see the apparition as well in between bites of their Whopper? I mean, we want to know, inquiring minds. In a world where all sorts of claims are made, some of which can even make the world a much more dangerous place, we have doubt built into us to protect us from those who would not only make absolute claims, but also try to shame us for not believing them without some evidence. The whole scientific method works this way, which is why science and religion have been in and out of divorce court for centuries. For example, the church said emphatically for a very long time and with presumed infallibility that the earth was the center of the universe and told everyone to accept it on faith. Don't be a doubting Thomas about where we are in the universe until Galileo followed up on the work of that doubting Thomas named Copernicus and said the church was wrong and he could prove it. Well, this is a crisis because if the church is wrong about this, then what else might the church be wrong about? So they put Galileo under house arrest and made him recant by writing the words of his apology and then making him get on his knees to read them aloud as if this cruel charade would reposition the planet. The writer of John's gospel has a comparable crisis on his hands as his struggling community clings to their claim that Jesus is risen while most people in the neighborhood are skeptical saying, well, where's the proof? Can you, can you show me this risen Jesus? Maybe I would recognize the body, even the marks of the crucifixion. So it only makes sense that having heard these doubters, John would create a story that embodies them all and would put an end to those doubts by having a resurrection appearance just for the doubting Thomases of this world. After Jesus shows his body for inspection and Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Jesus chides him for his reliance on evidence of any sort. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. The Greek word which translates here, come to believe, means to hold a proposition to be true with trust and conviction. The proposition, Jesus is the Messiah, should be believed according to the writer of John's Gospel, despite the absence of empirical evidence. And it fascinates me that Thomas does not believe the witness of his fellow disciples, 
but all the rest of us are supposed to believe the witness of Thomas. He doubted his fellow disciples, but we are not supposed to doubt him. So let me be clear. I am not suggesting that everything we believe should be based solely on evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. I am saying that we get that phrase itself, a reasonable doubt, because doubt itself is reasonable. It's good. It's healthy. It's a check against the blind faith and the horrors that history have proved to lie in its wake. In the first century, no claim could be made in a Jewish culture about the resurrection of anyone that did not include that somebody's body. If somebody was raised from the dead, it was the physical body that was raised. The body-spirit duality was a Greek idea, not a Jewish one. So when I preach Easter as a spiritual phenomenon, not a physical one, I am in fact being a doubting Thomas, confessing in public my doubts that the body of Jesus had anything to do with what the disciples experienced after his brutal execution. But you can't write the story that way in a culture that does not separate body and soul. Strangely, we still preserve this unity when we embalm bodies of the deceased and then display them at funerals. Doesn't she look natural, we say, to which I heard at least one honest child respond, no, she looks dead. <laughs> Our very human tendency to equate the body with the soul or, or spirit of the deceased makes for some strange and very expensive rituals of death. It can also make for a story in the Gospel of John that it is very reasonable to doubt. For starters, I do not believe Easter had anything to do with what happened to the body of Jesus, not only because the Bible makes all sorts of other suspect claims, like anyone can be born of a virgin, walk on water, raise people who are actually dead from the dead, turn water into wine, control the weather, just to name a few, but also because I reject the idea of the supernatural as a fundamental misunderstanding of how super the natural already is. Miracles are not magic. They're a revelation of how little we understand about the way the world is really put together and how it works. I'm afraid it's this quantum physics obsession of mine again. Everything really is connected to everything else and energy cannot pass away, it can only change form. What I find inspiring about the story of the birth of the early church, it's not based on a fantastic metaphysical claim, but in the actual behavior of a frightened group of followers who experienced the mysterious presence of their slain savior and then came out of hiding to continue his work. That's the miracle to me, that they did not give up. It is not supernatural. Natural laws are not suspended. They are affirmed by the mystery that is the luminous web. As for being a doubting Thomas, I feel indebted to this character like few others in the Bible. He wants to see for himself instead of having others see for him, and that puts him in a long line of doubters who changed history. I'll just give you a few. The divine right of kings, I doubt it. 
Slavery, that's the natural order of things. I doubt it. The earth is only 6,000 years old and humans were created instantly in our present form. I doubt it. God is an old man in the sky. I wrote a book about this and I doubt it. (laughs) That there's any such thing as a chosen people. This one's dangerous. I doubt it. That global climate change is a hoax. I doubt it. That there was neither collusion nor obstruction. I doubt it. I doubt it. I doubt it. That women, that women are not equal to men. I doubt it. A correction, I'm certain that that is not true. <laughs> that the best way to fight the war on terror is to fight it with more terror. I doubt it. That only Christians are saved and know God. I doubt it. That if you wait long enough, wealth will trickle down. I doubt it. That more guns will make us safer. I doubt it. That God saves one child in a plane crash and lets all the others perish. I doubt it. That really smart people are also always really good people. I doubt it. That knowledge is redemptive. I doubt it. That to think about doing something good is the same thing as actually doing a good thing. I doubt it. That vaccinations are a tool of the devil. I doubt it. That gay people can be cured and then they will not be sinners. I doubt it. That if you're a politician who loves a child in the womb, you will go right on loving her outside the womb. I doubt it. That teachers are slugs who get the summer off and more money won't help education. I doubt it. That the marketplace can solve all the problems of life. I doubt it that I should continue with this long list for hours until (laughs) you grow weary and begin to doubt the efficacy of it. I doubt it. I'm done. But in fact, for this and so many other things, we must give the benefit of the doubt. That does not just mean that we're supposed to avoid putting the most negative spin on our interpretation of other people and what they do or say, though that's important but because doubt itself is a savior. We should even have doubts about the doubts that we have and go on searching for truth fearlessly and with some humility. So to wrap this up, I believe that in the story of Thomas, the most overlooked miracle in the text is not what is so often captured in the artwork about this story, which is always a picture of Thomas putting his finger into the side of Jesus. You've seen those paintings. But it is, it is about fear and what fear can do to all of us. The text says the disciples had locked themselves into a room, quote, for fear of the Jews, a line that has helped spawn the scourge that is anti-Semitism. It wasn't the Jews that they needed to be afraid of, but the religious and political elites who were oppressing them, and the Jews suffered under that oppression too. Rather, it's this Greek word for closed that fascinates me. It's kleiso, K-L-E-I-S-O, kleiso. This describes the disciples as they suffered post-crucifixion stress syndrome. They were locked away behind 
clisoed doors, if I can make a verb out of it. And who's going to stop me? <laughs> the doors are closed because the community is closed, and that reminds me of so many churches today. Fearful of Muslims, of gays, of brown people on the border, we are being taught to be clisoed, closed, locked down, and our children are hearing and learning this lesson every day. So, just like our gay sisters and brothers came out, the church itself will need to come out of hiding. We are not going into the dark night that is totalitarianism gently. Nope, we're going to rage, rage against the dying of the light. Like Thomas, we will doubt the wisdom of the direction we are traveling until we can see for ourselves whether it makes the future better or worse. And if you're fascinated with epistemology, the history of how words came to be and mean, you will find it wonderful that this Greek word for closed, kleso, is linked to another Greek word that was then used to describe the church, ecclesia, which is where we get ecclesium and ecclesiastical having to do with the church. And it literally translates not closed. The Jesus people are the opposite of closed. We are open for business. We are unsealed, outed, free. And this I do not doubt because love, love for me is the ultimate proof. Love is the only proof I need. Love is the resurrection. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.